0: Now you talk about terror. Welcome to another podcast from the Chris Hedges Report. I'm Chris Hedges, and you can find more of my work at chrishedges.substack.com. Boya J. Farah fled the war in Somalia, arriving in the United States as a refugee with his mother and seven siblings when he was 15. His romantic dreams of America quickly ran into the dark undercurrents of American racism. Living in a housing project in Bedford, Massachusetts, he was forced to discover the curse of being black in America, the daily humiliations and small but insidious ways he was made to feel constantly as an outsider by whites. He had experienced tribalism in Somalia. He saw in the divide between whites and blacks, especially with the political ascendancy of Donald Trump and the far right, the same kind of deadly tribalism here, one that usually leads to internecine violence. He watched as other Somali families succumbed to the poison of American racism, writing that although they had survived the war in Africa, America broke them and carried them off. America is democratic, he concedes sardonically, for every black person is, in the end, simply another disposable black body. Joining me to discuss his memoir, "America Made Me a Black Man," is Boya J. Vara. First of all, it's beautifully written. You're a really fine writer, um, a poetic even. I think. Um, let's talk about Somalia. Uh, you witnessed a lot of violence. Uh, the country broke down. Uh, but just talk about your childhood. I must say thank you, Chris. You're one of the finest American I know. Right.
1: I. I read some of your work as well. You're wonderful. Uh, in 1991, uh, uh, right before the, uh, we celebrate, uh, the, uh, the arrival of the new year, a uh, war broke down and, and basically it was like a civil war, you know, families, you know, turning into each other and weapons everywhere. Um, and at the time my dad died a year before that, 1989. And it was like my mom, you know, he, you know I was, that was the first boy. And I was very young. And I, so I basically had to take responsibility and try to help my mom as we went away from the war, uh, the civil war. I mean, civil war is the worst out of all wars, I think. And so we exact in the country, uh, from refugee camp to refugee camp. One of the, one of the, one the, one of the memorable things we carried was this transistor radio. We actually listened to BBC Somali radio. To, so my mom, actually, the reason why she was listening to that is to know how far the militias were uh, so she, we could
0: walk in the opposite direction because her, her job was for us to survive. Let's talk about some of the things you saw, and uh, it's pretty brutal. Uh, I saw, uh, I, I've seen enormous,
1: uh, 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 brutal, you know, one case in point is I witnessed a man who was stoned to death. I've also witnessed a, a, a woman who actually, uh, he, it, was, it was me and a, a guy named Omar that I, that I write about it in the book. We were at the beach. And the reason why we used to go to the beach was we were incredibly hungry. And somehow when you go inside the water, the water kind of changes your mood. It, it, it almost makes you forget about the hunger inside your belly. And in the afternoons, that's what we used to do a lot. And one day, uh, a woman and a man were talking and I guess something happened. I don't know because that happened. I just, he shot her right there uh, and actually killed her. And no one actually uh, got close to her body until the imam, uh, at the end of that day, started telling the people that it was is, is our responsibility to bury the dead. Uh, I witnessed that. I've also witnessed that guy who was actually stoned to death in front of us. Uh, and the last thing that was alive, uh, as everyone walked away, was twitching ear. The ear didn't die. It was twitching. And
0: that guy stays with me. You, One of your closest childhood friends was killed, a girl. Yes. Um, she died
1: in, the, in, the, in, the, in, in a war. Uh, basically, uh, as she was running away from the war, um, there was an ambush. In the ambush, there were young people who were told that
0: they were in the opposite side of the war and they just basically killed everyone that was in the vehicle. So you're fleeing the violence, you end up in refugee camps. Is it two years you live in refugee camps, is that correct? We
1: zigzagged from refugee camp to the next for two years. I mean Ta- really talk
0: talk about life in the camps.
1: The life in the camp was actually worse than than the war. And in the war we were we were on the move, we were in emotion. We were basically we were running uh, when you're running, you don't really have time to think. You don't really have time to moan. You don't really have time to think. In the refugee camp, you have time to think. And when someone dies, you actually have time to moan. There were more people dying of dengue and, and, and uh, uh-huh. malaria than anything else. It was just barrier after barrier every single day. TB. And I remember uh, my job, because we have no job. My, our job as young, young kids, young boys was actually to, to predict who's going to die tomorrow, who we're going to bury. And literally it's predictable. I remember a uh, few, two weeks before I left the U.S., there was a dead body decaying right next to the tent that we put up by that, that house as a hospital. I was, I got malaria. So they took me to the hospital, you know, gave me, I, I was, I stayed there. And there was actually a dead body that nobody claimed for a few days without a refrigeration. So it actually, and this, the smell of it, uh, is something that will never leave, leave me. Sometimes I remember when I kind of, when my nose picks up, that kind of smell. It was actually a lot worse. But good thing is we didn't have, we didn't have, we, we were not running anymore. We were just stationary in one place, but people were dying of
0: other diseases much more than the war. And you become part of burial parties. So you're 12, 13 years old. You're digging graves.
1: Yes, uh, that was that was a job that that we had. And I, I mean, it, it was almost like when you in the morning you get up and you watch the sun climb up, and at nighttime, not in the, in, the after, in, the, in the, you know, when the sun goes down, you're sitting in the same place, and it, the the mind decays. So you know that was our job. And somehow when you when someone dies, you're participating in the barrier. It's almost like a job. It's almost like an activity. It's almost like something to do. I know it's kind of weird, but, you know, we expected it to die. You know, so it's not like death was like drinking water, literally drinking water. It was like
0: nothing. We were numb to it. And to get money, I, I, before we went on the air, you told me you were, you used to sell loose cigarettes, but talk about the, cause you're, you know, tremendously, your family's tremendously impoverished. Talk about what you had to do to get any any amount of money to survive.
1: My mother used to sell, um, you know, um, she'll buy grain and rice and put a, a cup in it and sit right on, uh, on the road. And so people passing by will buy, you know, uh, will buy the rice or sometimes she'll have nothing to bring us home. To help her, I actually used to buy a, a, a pack of cigarettes and si- sell single one to to our fighters, and sometimes the fighters i remember one time uh you know fighters sometimes they just put a gun to your face and you know you you just give it up um so that was actually my job to sell cigarettes during the war and and also tobacco I actually learned how to do how to put together make tobacco you know buy different chemicals buy the tobacco the cheapest one there is make the tobacco and, and wrap it up with uh um, plastic bags that I collect from the streets and, and sell it, along with the, with the tobacco, with, along with the, with the new cigarettes. And that's how my mother put food on the table. So me and my mother worked together, survived.
0: So you're a reader. Uh, that's a theme in the book. The uh, other theme in the book is your father. You end the book with his death, and you write that he had, I believe, lung cancer, but he couldn't get proper medical care. Your father was also uh, in the military. Um, he And just talk, let's begin just with the influence of your father, because that's pervasive throughout the book.
1: Yeah, my father, may he rest in peace. Um, it's kind of sad, almost a lot of people that are in the book are no longer <laughs> here. Uh, so, this book is to honor the dead. My father was in the war in the in, uh, Somali army. He was also in the first rebellious group against the Marxist government. Uh, Siambara's government. And so his influence on me was that I, when I was first born, I think he expected me to be a fighter. And his, the way my I, my father treated me and the way he treated the, 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 his daughters were completely different. He wanted to prepare me for a life of hardship and struggle and war. And because the, you know, his life was about that. And his, his father did the same, same thing. Um, so my father prepared me for uh what we, you know, the war to come and the struggle to come. So a lot of the things that how he prepared me, he took me to a valley uh when I was really young. And the reason why is he wanted me to man up, completely become a, a nomadic warrior who has
0: absolutely no fear except God. Well, there's also that scene at the end of the book where he's dying and you are hesitant, but finally you tell him you love him. And those were not words that passed, had before passed between you. Yeah, because in the culture, you know, in a Somali culture, um,
1: the you're not supposed to say, you lo- I love you. Those words shall not be uttered. What you're supposed to, say, what you're supposed to show your love to your parents, you know, by fetching the water, by rubbing their feet. By giving the money, I mean something tangible is how you transfer love between Somali culture. So there was no way for me to look at him in the eyes and say, "I love you." That's not going to happen. But when I knew that he was dying, there was no, it was no coming, it was not coming back. I knew it. So I want him to, the last words to be because I'm the I'm the the last person that was there uh, in the room as he was dying, and. And I confessed I loved him in the years to make sure that he, he understood that I loved him.
0: Let's talk about reading. You, you write a lot about in, in Somali culture, poets are revered. This is, I spent seven years in the Middle East. That's also true in uh, Arab culture. Uh, but talk about the power of poetry uh, and its importance culturally and how it shaped you.
1: Uh, I think the only thing I inherit from my father, may he rest in peace, that he's now living in the galaxy of the dead, is words. I don't inherit. He didn't, I didn't inherit anything else from him, but words. When he sat down with me and told me that, you know, uh, don't ever break your word. Don't ever, you know, capitulate uh, to anyone's. Um, if, if you know, you are high. You are the son. You are my son you know, died with your words. Never break that nobody. Uh words are, are the link between him and I. And his father what he inherited from his father was also words. So the reason why Somalia is still alive and still doing okay after forty years I and mean, close to forty years of war is the poetry. You know, when someone dies, you don't admit that person is is, is killed by your enemy tribe or your enemy or whoever kills them. They say God kills. Therefore, the spirit is not broken. You never admit, uh, uh, you never, ever admit defeat. Only God kills. Only God judges us. You know, you keep the, the spirit alive. So that's what I
0: heard from my father, his words. words, um, keep my words together and use my words to make me feel alive. Let's talk about your perceptions of America, largely through television and movies. I thought it was fascinating how you viewed American blacks, but everything you understood about America came from mass culture. Uh, and then we'll talk about your arrival in the United States. But talk about what you thought the country was when you were in Somalia and in the refugee camps.
1: Well, well, America was a star. And to me, in the star was like fantastic. It was not, it was, you know, I really, the only access I have um, you know, America is basically the movies that we watched. And in nighttime, in the, in the darkness of the refugee camp, what you see as a child was the stars because we, we put mats outside of the tent and we we'll watched the stars. And I used to think the stars to be just like humans fight. They fight each other. Some of the stars fall. Some of the stars remain. And to me, to reach for the star was like incredibly powerful. I wanted to be in America. I got sick in the refugee camp. Like I said, I got, I got a malaria. But I just couldn't wait. I asked God not to kill me until I get to America. So really, the procession of America was that powerful. And what I thought about African Americans and black people in America was the only access I have to black people is what I saw in the movies. In in the movies, the way black people are projected is thugs or uh, you know uh, unpleasant pictures of black people. So as I came. Uh, I didn't want to be close to them, even though I was the one that was incredibly skinny. I was the one with no clothes. I was the one wearing, you know, looking incredibly poor, you know, because the perception inside my, the picture inside my head was was what was di- dictating me, not the,
0: re- not the reality. And I just want to talk about the concept of whiteness and blackness. That's something, of course, James Baldwin writes about uh, as concepts. And you didn't have that, concept of blackness when you were in Somalia, as you write in the book, because, of course, everyone was black. The doctors were black. The police were black. The dentists were black. The teachers were black. So before we talk about that transition to a predominantly white culture, uh, just uh, talk about that idea of blackness.
1: Uh, that that particular, I, that was not mine. I didn't belong. Blackness, whiteness really didn't belong to me because in, in Somalia, I am my father's son. I belong to a set of tribe that, you know, protect me, they'll fight for me, I'll fight for them. You know, in that that was it. Uh so America, you know, I really didn't imagine my life to be other than I'm going to America, I'm going to heaven, I'm going to the country of my dream. I want to be part of the American dream. I wanted to be a doctor. That's what I. That, that's what I wanted to be. So the, the the concept of blackness, I did not arrive. Uh in America, I mean, it did not, it didn't belong to me. I was equal to everyone. I'm a nomad. Uh, I value freedom over everything, including death. And I knew Americans were free. And so I arrived. That was my, what I was thinking about.
0: Okay, let's talk about that confrontation with American culture. Uh, is it the first place you live is the housing project in Bedford, Massachusetts? Is that correct?
1: No. Um the the first housing project that we live in was outside of that, Uber. Uh but I in Bedford we're living with my sister. You know, in a two-bedroom environment.
0: So you you run smack into the reality of America, which you write about quite powerfully. Talk about that. And in the beginning, uh even though uh things happen to you, for instance, you go to buy I think you're about 16, you go to buy a piece of pizza, you save money to buy the pizza, and when you walk into the store, the owner lifts up a knife uh, and, and tells you the police are right at police stations right around the corner. You don't confront it. You, in fact, walk outside quite sheepishly and eat your pizza outside. But talk about running into that reality. Also, you write when you're in bed, in the housing project in Bedford, about being near a white community, uh, but you're segregated and in many ways isolated be- because of the fact that you live in the projects. Yes.
1: I, in many ways, I was young and naive and I didn't understand America. The danger of it didn't belong to me. The danger of being black in America didn't belong to me. And the enormous, I had so much love and I was so much gratitude. I came from death. I was happy to be alive, let alone confronting that guy. There's no way I could confront him. He was the America I, that invited me into the country. He was the America that I wanted to beat. So when I went into, into that, and he knew me, that's the sad thing about it. Uh, he knew, cause I, I, biked into that shop so many times. And exa- I know exactly where it is. I actually visited it recently. It's not there anymore. But it, I, I was just, it was just, there was no way for me to confront uh, what he did because my imagination of America was completely, totally different. I was also young, and also uh, living in a in a project. I, once again, we were we were grateful, you know, that we were actually had we actually have hot water and cold water and food and a fridge, you know. So, a newcomers when you came from a place that I came from, you know, you have enormous love for America. There's no way that you can. Uh you can you realize what's happening to you is wrong. But where you came from is quite harsher. You have no place to go. This is home. You have to you have to capitulate and learn to be, you know, part of the society. But my inner culture resisted for many, many years.
0: You write about going to college, you work for ten years for a company where you run into kind of insidious racism in small and big ways from wh- white co-workers. You open the book by talking about being stopped by police in a white neighborhood. It's quite a powerful chapter. Talk about that process of discovering, let's call it the dark heart of America.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think an immigrant life like mine is not an American until you get to drive. Or when you get to drive, you get stopped more frequently. Uh, and sometimes you already know that you're going to get stopped. I remember me and my brother driving on the opposite direction, a cop going the opposite direction than us. And I told him, hey, put your seatbelts up because, you know, you know buckle up your seatbelts because that cop is going to make a U-turn and stop us. And we we're, were actually watching with the red view, view mirror. He actually he made a U-turn, followed us, stopped us, and let us go. He didn't even give us a ticket. You know, for one, because he knows we're we're, we're immigrant, we happen to be in the country. where We apologize too many times. where I think the reason why I I didn't get probably didn't get shot because I was always apologetic. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Because that's what I have learned over the years. You know, because survival was part of my culture. You know, in the last many many years in the war or during the war in America everywhere. Uh, so little by little, America didn't really tell me that I'm a black man. In his belly, metaphorically, it started to show me that I'm a a black man living in his belly by frequent stops. But also, when you get a job and, you know, for sure, you you overly qualify sometimes, but you never move up. You stay in the same place. Your salary stay flat. And actually, even though your salary stay flat, there's no way you can even keep that job. You're going to get fired. You know that for sure. You're going to get fired. And I denied that for many, many years because I was so grateful.
0: Well, you talk in the book about uh, you have a college degree, you get a job in a corporation, and uh, the woman, at one point, they hire a woman who has just a high school degree and promote her. Uh, uh, and, And even at one point, she goes AWOL. She's not even at work for a long period of time. But just the difference between, and you have a close friend, it's, quite poignant, one other black person who's working with you, who I think you went to high school with, who you have a long yes. history with. Um, but it it begins to affect his health and your health, this constant stress, uh, which you slowly become aware of. Can you talk about that?
1: Yes. Yeah. I mean, I in, initially I was watching Darren. am oh, I writing the book? I watch his life and he he's the warner of America. He's the, the knower of America. He's African-American. I am the, Af- I am an African American in the making. America is showing me this. So I'm learning through him that he tells me that his destiny is in the hands of America. Uh, part of me know that stuff and I have to deny it because of my, in the culture of freedom that I have and I'm a culture that says you are free. Yeah, it goes to everyone. So I, I you know, I, I kept denying it, but in, in so many instances, people who were less qualified than the job came, got the job, became my bosses. They still do not know how to do their job. I have to do their job, and I know for sure they don't qualify. And somehow, pieces of you it chips away. Your spirit dies without knowing, and you're struggling to keep the same job you have had, while this person becomes a job, you're, you're, you're your your um, your 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 boss within six months, sometimes very quick. And so, little by little, you die. Your soul begins to uh, decay. Your spirit you know, quarrels and you uh uh slavery refuse to come. Because if you lose this job, it means you lose your livelihood, you lose your insurance, you lose your car, you lose your apartment, you cannot maintain a relationship. It really destroys you. It literally destroys you. You die, you're like a dead man walking and, you know, small little disease comes your because your your immune system is already weak. Um, you'll you'll belong to the galaxy of the dead before you even know it.
0: Well, Derek loses his job, but because he grew up in America, he knows that he's a target.
1: Yes, he knew exactly that he was a target, and i i I was a denier of that I part of me wanted to you know uh, teach him my culture a culture of resistance, a culture of freedom, and a culture that says I'm equal to everyone uh, but you know this, this racism in america is not' it's not individual, it's systematic when you're going against system. You do not know where the enemy is. In Somalia, you know your enemy. You know your friends. There's, there's, there's nothing in between. Uh, but here, there's you can't point a finger at an individual and says, you, please, you know what I mean? Be kind to me. There's nothing like that. It's system. So Derek was the truth teller. I was in denial. And it really affects our health.
0: Well, I remember in high school, I think you have a high school counselor, a, a black woman, who keeps telling you, uh, boy, you're an African-American now, you're not African.
1: Yes, Mrs. Parker. May she rest in peace. She told me enormous time that I'm an African-American, that I'm no longer African. But once again, you know, America was in the way. My love for America is in the way. You know, I got, my own mother tells me, don't write this book. She still carries that love for America American just you know, um, you know, don't say anything bad about America, just say the good thing um you know, so i was i i I resisted her for many years, but everything she said to me
0: became true. Miss Barker may she rest in peace and let's talk about you 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 talk about other families from Somalia who are broken uh by america uh can Can you describe that?
1: Yeah, um, we we came from we were we used to live right across from each other in a white tent. There was about ten thousand white tents, you know, next to each other in in Utanga refugee camp outside of Bombasa, Kenya. And I remember the day that our names were put out in front of the tent uh that we were going. We visited that little our names and touch our names. I mean, enormous number of times to make sure they didn't make a mistake that we were going to America for so for us to come to America was I mean, it's like having uh, entering heaven. But they did not make it. Uh one succumbed to uh okay. drugs and the other one went mad. The one one kills himself, uh the other one went mad. And the one who killed himself actually the mother was um the cops asked him, the mother whether really, she killed her son. Uh, but, I, but I
0: just want to interrupt, boy, because this is yeah. after they come to America. It's not in the refugee
1: camp. Yeah. No, no, no. We all came in the same plane.
0: Right. But, that, America, but their family disintegrates once they're here.
1: Yes. Their family disintegrates. The son dies. One went mad. The girls, went, you know, ran away and the father died. And So it's, it's gone. The family no more.
0: You use strong words. I mean, you talk about America breaking spirits. Uh, You say America is on the path of those two broken souls who are responsible for maiming and killing without any justification. Once you do that, you're looking in the face of your own demise, sitting on the edge of your own destruction. These are uh, essentially homicidal forces.
1: Uh, Because uh, I, I, I know I'm a knower of a lot. I mean, I've survived war. You know, those who, you know, if you don't, if you don't, you know, confront the brutal reality of Black people in this country. And its I know it's hard to admit, but it is something that we must do uh, to confront the brutality and so we can move forward. Uh, when you're carrying, uh, you know, destructive, destroying other people's lives, it, it comes back. It really does come back. And when it does come back, it comes back massively. Uh, so this, I wrote this book for America. I, 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 I really want to warn America. It's almost like, you know, I, re- I have enormous love for America, but I also, if I don't tell the truth to America, then I feel like, you know, if death comes tomorrow, I didn't really do the right thing. I, I think we, we, we have to confront the brutality of black people's lives and amend what has been broken so we can, this country can move forward. And that's the very reason
0: why we would have spoken about that. I just want to read this passage. You're writing about white people. They are afraid. I know that. The white people and their police force are afraid. What frightens them is not the 13% of the population, the black people, that they fixate on. What frightens them in the end is the memory of their own ruthless brutality, the judgment of their own conscience. The past always comes alive in the present, in the present. And with the passage of time, the history of race takes its shape in each individual soul, black and white. And I think you argue in the book that with the rise of Trump and the far right, essentially that poison is now eating away at the at the at the body politic of the country itself.
1: Yes, um, in a way, you know, um, our own path comes back. Uh, you know your your footprints is important. This individually, we say when you do harm to the living, karma comes back. Those two individuals that I talked about, one is chained to a to a. I mean, in Somalia, he's in a madhouse in Somalia. You see, it was just it's better for him to die.
0: The well, you're talking one, about you're talking about these two fighters. The two fighters who were, were very fighters. intimidating in I guess your neighborhood, and then you yes. go back and visit them.
1: Yes, they kill a lot of people. They harm the living. And ultimately, that came back to them. Well, I use that example for America in the largest sense. I mean, the the rise of Trump, the rise of all these things. It's nothing but, you know, what we have done in a way that it's time for us to admit it and just say, hey, this is part of our history. Let's move forward. This country needs to move forward in terms of fixing
0: what's broken. You can't move forward if you don't know who you are. That is true. We're going to stop there. That was Boya J. Farah. On his memoir, America Made Me a Black Man, I want to thank the Real News Network and its production team, Cameron Granadino, Adam Coley, Dwayne Gladden, and Kayla Rivera. You can find me at chrisedges.substack.com.